you are listening to The Janine Garner Show. Janine is a leading expert on leadership and driving influence through networking and collaboration, passionate about bringing brilliant people together to achieve remarkable results. Join Janine Garner as she shares insights, interviews and conversations, and let's together make the remarkable happen. Welcome to the latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance and today I have as my guest the fabulous Kieran Flanagan. Now Kieran is an expert in commercial creativity and problem solving. She's all about helping people change their current thinking and achieve more success in work, business and life. She is an international speaker who has been rated in the top 25 C-suite speakers to watch and is the co-author of Wiley published book Selfish scared and stupid. Before she became an author and a speaker, Kieran was a strategic and creative lead behind the most successful products product launch sorry, in Australian history for Coca-Cola. And she's worked with the UN in Singapore and some of the biggest brands on the planet. As well as that, she was head of Australia's creative school. She is now the co-founder of the Impossible Institute. She appears on radio and TV and has been published by hundreds of publications around the planet. As well as that, Kieran is an amazing friend of mine. We have literally just finished running a workshop today in Melbourne for a professional services firm. And of course, I grabbed her before she ran off because I want I want to capture you for the podcast. <laughs> Wonderful to have you here. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for letting me grab you away from your cup of tea and your supper. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having me, Janine. It's a pleasure to get to hang out and uh, it's never an, an effort to spend time together. Yay. So, Karen, um, can you just give us the plotted history of what got you here? Where did it all start for you? Um, bring the listeners in the loop of your journey. Wow, it's, that's a really big question. Where did it begin? I think it probably began for me. You know, my parents had a news agency growing up, so... I think inevitably as a, a young person, they bought it uh, when I was in fifth grade. So what does that make you about uh, 11? So 10, 11. And uh, I was thrust into a, a small business and I spent an enormous amount of time getting to know human beings and people because we had to work in the shop. You know, mm. it's what we did after school. It's what we did on the weekends. And by the time I was at university, I, I did a design degree because at the time I I kind of liked design and I didn't really know what I wanted to do like most people and I thought I'd, I'd go and do design. But uh, by the time I got there, I had this quite – I was running the business on the weekends and when they went away and just keeping myself super busy doing that. And I was doing a project actually. We were doing a group project and being very compliant – and going, yeah, whatever. Someone in the group said, oh, can I go and uh, can we interview Simon Reynolds? We had to go and interview someone. And I, because I was doing a design degree, advertising was quite frowned upon in a way. And anyway, we decided to go and do uh, interview him. And I remember walking into the room and my group all hadn't, were all starstruck because he was quite famous at the time. And uh, no one would speak to him. So I was left to just have a conversation with him. And I think having been brought up in the shop and constantly speaking to people, I, I didn't have that. You know, I just got in, asked him questions. And I remember having a light bulb moment of, are you kidding? Is this a career? I had no one in my family that had that level of I guess business, you know, they, my parents had a business. No one I knew had that sort of job. I didn't know it was a job apart from Bewitched. Anyone who's <laughs> old enough to have ever watched Bewitched, which was old in reruns when I was a kid, but, you know, he was in advertising, but it never occurred to me it was a job. And speaking to Simon, I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, that's all the things I love in one job. Like, and at that moment, I was, I knew 100% that that was going to be the job I wanted to do. So at that point I enrolled in uh, award school, which I went on to run later, some years later. And when this, while I was still finishing my degree, I decided I'd do it at, at night and on the weekends. And I just, it was instant love. 
it was instant love. It brought together my love of understanding human beings, of, you know, really liking problems and wanting to solve them and writing and visuals and just thinking. I, I had a deep, immediate passion for that. So it sort of happened from there. And, you know, when, when you run advertising school, they take, you know, 150, 200 people a year, about five 600 people apply, and then they take a small amount. And they say to you when you start, well, look around the room, five of you will be lucky to get jobs. And yeah, that's I, positive. Yeah, positive, no, positive framing. framing you know, it? positive framing. But it's, you know, the advertising industry is very cutthroat and go hard and, you know, let's let's have honour by how hard we work. But uh, even at the moment, you know, as a 20-year-old 20, I was at the time, 19 maybe, I, there was deep certainty. Mm. I had a deep, deep certainty that I would get a job that this was the thing I was going to do. And I literally finished, got a job. Mm. And you ended up being one of the most senior females in that industry. Yeah. That, right? You often talk about I was the female in the madman world. Yeah, I was, you know, uh, the, the stats were at the time 2.97% of uh, female leaders in the advertising industry were women. And I always joke, I always say, oh, well, <laughs> you know, funnily enough, I have a boy's name, Kieran. <laughs> And I always say my parents had other plans, which they may have. <laughs> never find they may have indeed had other plans. But I think it turned out you know, pretty well for me. Uh, but I also had the great privilege. I was hired uh, by a guy called George Betzis, who's a, an amazing thinker. And he was setting up an advertising agency. And he had come from, you know, big pedigree agencies like Saatchi's. And he'd opened an agency called Oman in New York. And, you know, he was just, I need you. He recognised, apparently the moment for him where he decided who to hire. So we used to do something called Masterclass. So they took the top students out of advertising school and he ran it of his own time and energy and took about 25 students and put them through something called Masterclass. And it was on a Saturday and every week he would set a brief and you had a week to work on it and you'd come back and present your work and he would eliminate people. Oh gosh, so it was, it was like, like Survivor. It was like reality TV. It was like reality TV before reality ago. TV. So it was literally like that. So every week he would throw people out. And at the time I was still finishing uni. I was in my very final semester. So I had a lot on. And my parents were travelling. And uh, I was running the business with my two sisters. And they and my grandfather was in hospital really sick. And he said to my parents, you know what, just go away. You, we can't always... Yeah, just go. Anyway, he passed away while they were away and they were on a boat in Canada and it was very complicated to find them to tell them that this had happened at the time. And I remember it was the morning of... I was meant to go in and present on a Saturday morning and I, I was sad but we knew mm. he was, you know, going to go and I, w I was really upset but I was so horrified at not... I didn't have George's number... So I had no way of contacting him. So I went, I have to go in and present my work. I can't not show up because I'll get thrown out. So, oh, you know, I don't know how the brain of you work when you're 20. You just go, I, I have no option. So I went in, but I was late. And his whole thing was if you were late, you were thrown out. So I walked in and he went, you're late. And I burst into tears because I actually was upset and went, my grandfather died. I'm really sorry this morning and I've had to find my parents who are in Canada and and he said I had no filter and it wasn't why I did it at the time but he said years later he said in that moment I'm like this girl looks like don't be fooled she's hardcore <laughs> and he was like if you show up when your grandfather dies you'll show up oh. so that hardcore did that play out as you built your career in that world of advertising is that one of the traits that you had to uh, learn to nurture in terms of the resilience piece and the, the toughening up a bit or did you manage Do you know to relax what? on that? I'm actually a really quite an emotional, relational human being but I had the privilege of my mum is brutally honest. She has no inside voice and she doesn't have a traditional mothering bone in her body at all. Please she, tell your <laughs> Christmas tree story. <laughs> she, doesn't, she doesn't like children uh, in the nicest possible way. So she was never a mother that thought we were awesome and I think she, 
she gave me the great gift of not being so sensitive because she was brutal in a lovely way. So we went, I wasn't sensitive and I think it made me survive advertising really well because it was where other people got really offended. I just, it was just normal behaviour to be told where I wasn't good enough. And uh, Janine said, tell the story. My mum, it was always a joke, but she used to rank us on the Christmas tree. So, I mean, you know, I don't know if people lose the Christmas baubles you hang on your tree and they paint the names on them. So in my household, the thing was that you got ranked. So the higher up the tree you were, you were closer to what we called the cherub child, which meant you were the favourite child for the year. So it was always a competition to see uh, who was my mother's favourite child, the best performing child. So we got annual performance reviews uh, <laughs> with love uh, based on our performance. Where did you year. rank on that tree? Do you know? I, do you know, the funny thing is I have no memory of where. It was just the humour of the process and her her directness to go, I don't understand how people think their children are unconditionally awesome because I don't. Like mm. I see their flaws and their failings and, she, you know, she always says, oh, well, I just keep you grounded because otherwise you'd just be ridiculous. So I think, I, it, again, you know, stuff makes sense. You go, I had this wonderful gift where some people would go well that's a bit challenging her straightness her directness her we were loved I never felt unloved but she was always like well you're incredibly average she didn't say you're amazing and a special snowflake she said you're incredibly average and I don't understand even now she goes I can't I don't understand that people would pay you to speak or I don't I just stupid book I can't even read it it's just ridiculous <laughs> so she just doesn't it's wonderful sort of balance people are like oh you're amazing and then you go home and she's like oh you're so average are they going to find you out <laughs> how do you think that played out in terms of your leadership style so as you progress through your corporate career in terms of running that agency I'm imagining that you had teams of people yeah that were look that you were leading or managing Managing. Um, how do you think that played out in terms of the type of leader you were in that environment? Well, do you, the thing, you know, I faced, I guess I was a really young leader. So I was one of the youngest ever creative directors in an agency in, you know, in Australian history. Uh, I was early 20s or 23 or something. And I was suddenly in charge of some very large brands and a whole lot of responsibility. And I think that was an interesting journey in itself because I also looked very young at the time and I sounded incredibly young and I think I grappled with that for a while I grappled with just how how do you show up and have people respect your commitment and talent and thinking rather than look and see your age so that was incredibly, and again, you know, George was incredibly, and, you know, Simon Reynolds, funnily mm. enough, ended up being one of our first creative directors. They were, they were in the agency together. So hilariously, the guy that made me want to get in advertising, uh, you know, they're both wonderful thinkers and really open and always encouraging you to just do extraordinary stuff. And they really backed me. They really supported and said, you know, you're, you're, you're an incredible thinker and it's unusual. So I'm unusual because I'm quite strategic and creative at the same time. I, I don't lean one way or the other. I actually enjoy the problem solving. It's, mm. it's not, you know, some creatives like to do it for the originality or the newness or the, but I actually deeply like to serve the problem. And I'm happy for it to not be as new or original if it's powerful Mm. So, again, I think my, you know, the time in the shop, the people mm. stuff mm. is so embedded in mm. my brain. So if you think back to those early 20s and, you know, you obviously had that power of a wonderful group of promoters in George and yeah. Simon. Um, what do you think you did for yourself in terms of overcoming that um, challenge of age, voice, looks, etc., and other people's perceptions of smarts? What did you do evolve change learn oh look i think a it was just work like let the work speak mm. work work so hard and and earn earn it you know i i think it 
you to start on the back foot a bit, but clients, I think, would quickly understand, you know, don't underestimate me. Mm. I, I always say my stage persona is Reese with a knife, not a spoon. I think my whole life I've been somewhat underestimated because people go, oh, you look and sound kind of friendly and nice, and they underestimate the intensity and the, you know, a brutal ability to do the work. Mm. You know, I will, I will play hardball, but mm. people don't see it coming. So I think that's an interesting little dilemma. I think it took a while for the outside to catch up. Or even now, I don't think people, you know, I think they go, oh, yeah, you'll be way friendlier than you are. Because, again, friendly and social, but it doesn't mean I'm not quite intense about chasing what I want. And, look, we had a brutal environment, hilariously, that the advertising agency that uh, we worked in with George and Simon and then later I was a partner in so it became my agency with George and Dan Gregory who's my current business partner we had a really creative entrepreneurial culture we were very we were the first advertising agency to operate outside of the media commission structure we were rebel rabble rousers we were rebels we were undermining a system that we'd never worked in so we just bought in and went, yeah, we're, we're with you to undermine this whole system. And we tried all kinds of weird and wonderful and amazing things. And, you know, we had open pay reviews so everyone knew what everyone was getting paid. The staff could vote on taking a little bit of money away from people or giving them more to distribute bonus money. Uh, we had open goals on the ball. So we knew when people we, – our thing was like come and be here all in – for as little of time as works, you know, if you want to go on and do other things, go. Mm. But keep it, don't hide it. Yeah. So we're very much like that. Those, that concept of the open pay review and almost the bartering yeah. on salary. Yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> God, how did that go down? How did you ensure it didn't become a nasty place and actually became a contribution you know what? I, place? Look, the people that, some people were like, oh, it's a weird cult. Some people moved on really fast. They were deeply uncomfortable. But... You know, there was this, it's just, it was a really transparent, straight, we had a lot of straight conversations. Mm. You know, we had these Monday morning meetings, we called greatness meetings, and we'd score our performance for the week and we'd give feedback. And you know what, I would say four, five out of six were relatively going through the motions and you'd almost go, oh, should we even do these anymore? But then you'd get one that was transformative. Like an extraordinary conversation would happen around something. I remember early on we were doing one and uh, George was having a conversation and I was, you know, the eternal female things, uh, sadly, sometimes uh, the, the boys, because I was the only girl, were, were constantly not listening to my ideas. Mm. And, I would, and George called them on it. And he's like, I don't understand why you're not listening to Kieran's ideas. And some of them said, well, you treat her differently. She's a favourite. Interesting. Yeah, she's a favourite. And I think there was a bit of frustration there. And he said, with, you know, again, having awesome support, he said, you know why she, she is a favourite and do you want to know why? And they all went, what? Like, you're not meant to say she's the favourite. He said she's a favourite because she's really good. Isn't it interesting how almost that conversation with George is a direct replica of the conversation with your mum? I know, right? Isn't it fascinating <laughs> that the two, the two personalities are yeah. So he brutally called them. He said mm. she's the favourite. You know, when you're as good, you'll be the favourite. Mm. She work. Look at the work. Look at her brain. Mm. It's not whether she's a girl or not. Did you ever feel different? Did you ever feel like that soul woman in a man's world? <sighs> not, not early on. You know, I had the best men around me. Like the guys I worked with were just fantastic. I mean, that was an anomaly conversation, and it got squashed really quickly. And to their extraordinary credit, they all went fair call. You know, once it, again, we don't have the conversation to move on. It wasn't harboured. It was like, yeah, right, what can we do? You know, it was a step up the game conversation. And I didn't notice it until later. And it's hard. I found it hard when, you know, my world at the time was there is no difference. But later you get begin to see the difference and you begin to see it more and it becomes, well, it, this is for me, it becomes more important and I think, you know, we were having a conversation with a client about some women's leadership work and uh, she said, oh, what do you do for graduates? 
And the conversation we had back was, I'm not sure it's the right time. Because, you know, when you're younger, you're getting promoted easily. You feel like there's no ceiling. And I think it's later as you get more and more and more senior that the ceiling suddenly emerges, Mm. that you do get a sense of it's not always the same. And it's unconscious. And that's where you go. We actually, for for all of our futures and and to make stuff better, we need to start to shift those numbers a bit more. Mm. Do you see the shift actually happening? Do you think there's change happening? Look, yeah and no. Mm. I think in, yes, like all progress, it's happening, but it's happening in small ways and it's potentially not happening fast enough. And the other thing I worry about is that I'm not sure the solution's a divisive one. So by creating sides, it's men versus women, I think is problematic. And, you know, I think we need awesome men. And uh, my business partner, you know, again, you know, I've been really lucky to have great men around me who really actually acknowledge the difference Mm -hmm. and acknowledge that sometimes it isn't exactly fair and that women sometimes have to work harder. And that's been awesome. And I, so for me, I go, how do we get more men to see this and to understand this? And, uh, you know, men who have daughters suddenly see it, which I find interesting. And and they, when you've got a, a young woman, you think, what kind of world do I want her to walk into? What kind of workforce do I want her to walk into? And do I want her to be treated differently or have less chance of promotion and less chance of acknowledgement just because of her gender. Mm. So hopefully as more men and women uh, decide to make a change, we'll see more rapid change. So this whole podcast is around how individuals become more brilliant or how they find their inner purpose or their fire. Um, If you had to look back and identify the elements, the people, the things that allowed you to unleash and shine, what would you say they were? I would say that they were an encouragement to back myself. Like I had good people that, you know, I called out my strengths and made what what was innate with me. I often think, you know, we I often say we have a we all have a superpower and that often we don't know what our superpower is. And I think I was lucky enough to have people go, you know what, you you sort of have a gift and a superpower there. And and then you work your butt off to make that gift work. You know, we we hilariously, you know, we the agency we were in, the work ethic was insane. And uh, it was a badge of honor. And look, I'm not sure now as an old older person that I I look back and go wow but I used to say what else would I be doing I'll be sitting at home watching tv Mm. like why wouldn't I be working on trying to be great Mm. when I could be sitting on my butt watching tv it didn't make any sense to me but we at the time computers were just sort of coming into uh, corporate culture, and it sounds really long ago. That makes it sound really old. I remember my first email to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ooh, we were very email. classic early adopters. Uh, we used to email each other because no one else had emails. <laughs> Seriously, classic early adopters. But I remember we, uh, we used to have this one design computer. It was very expensive, Apple. So they were really expensive as well. So we had computers, but we had one design computer. And... Uh, I was in working, and I think it was about 3 a.m. on a Saturday night, because <laughs> that's what 21-year-olds want to be doing, but that was me. <laughs> uh, and uh, anyway, some other creatives came in, and there was a queue. <laughs> there was a queue for the computer. It was like, take a number. I remember that. You a queue for the computer yeah, to type up. You I young say, people oh, listening. <laughs> gosh, I'd forgotten about that. You'd I'd forgotten. sit outside the library waiting. <laughs> So, so that was a, that was the kind of work ethic, right? You could call our agency twenty four seven; it's someone would be there. Hmm. There was never no one there. And look, that culture is very strong still in advertising. You know, where are you, you part timers? And I'm not sure that's super smart. But when you love something, you know, it was just it was blind commitment and love for it. You know, I loved it. Hmm. I remember loving. It. I was like, I don't understand. People go, I don't understand how you work so much. I go, I don't understand how you see it as work. Hmm. Yeah, it's just joy. Mm. And look, it was hard. Like, of course there were hard things, but when you love it, I think 
I think that's one of the things, you know, and people say it a lot, but find the stuff that lights you up. And how do you? So that question around, you know, Simon Sinek posted it of start with why. There's conversations going on everywhere about find your purpose. Um, how, how do you find that thing that lights you up? Do you think it's possible to search it out or do you think it's more about I think becoming it's present? Fo- I think it's become present and follow your interests mm. and then look how your interests apply somewhere. I, you know, I'm not, sometimes I think we, you know, we put so much pressure on ourselves to, to know mm. and I'm not sure we do always know. Like, I don't think, I, I mean, I, I had, it's funny, I knew with certainty that I would be good at that job. That's mm. what I had to go on. I was like, it's all the skills, it's the things I love all mixed in together. But I knew nothing about advertising. But I knew what I really enjoyed thinking. You know, I, I was this weird mix between science nerd <laughs> and English arty mm. kind of person. Mm. I had a quite a holistic interest mm. and most people you know I thought about being an engineer go mm. figure I know shocking you know my when I was leaving school I was like oh should I be an engineer or an architect or you know should I go should I do this so I didn't really know because I actually quite liked I, I was good at science I was good at maths I was good at art I was good at English now what about because I'm sure it's not all been unicorns and rainbows maybe it has has there been a moment where you go, you really had to dig deep to keep going? Um, I Look, my personality, I'm such a glass half full. You know, one of my favourite movies is Pollyanna, <laughs> which makes my business partner Dan laugh a lot because he goes, oh, my, you're so that. It just is revolting. So I really like seeing the world. I choose to see the world uh, from a positive frame. And I think it's been something I've had all my life even as a child I just sort of have a brain that does that so no but you know when I was running the agency um and I was running it and at the time we were launching a product that people didn't know about uh so the eight so George at the time who was my business partner Dan had gone my other business partner Dan he'd gone overseas for three four years uh, doing stand-up comedy, and George was focused on bringing this new product that we were investing into life. And so I was left running the agency. I think I was 26 and uh, maybe 25. I wasn't very old, and it was an enormous workload. It, you know, it was a crazy amount of pressure and work. I had a lot of creatives to run and all the clients to manage, you know, the whole lot of it. And uh, I remember I'd come home every night and sit in the bath and cry every single night without fail. I would just have oh, a bath gosh. and sit in the bath and sob. And it wasn't that I was upset, but I was so stressed and so full that I would cry. So I guess that potentially that is... Move. Well, I look back now and I go, that probably was a whole lot of pressure. Yeah. But I didn't I didn't experience it as awful. Yeah. But yeah. if I say that to someone, they go, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> but I, I didn't experience it that way. I just experienced it as... Um, as what it was so now you're currently in the middle of writing a new book I am uh, which will be coming out next year Um, do you want to put into context what the book's about sure so I'm co-writing it with Dan Gregory my business partner Uh, the book is called forever skills and it's a book that emerged I guess from an interest of ours so one of the things you know we do with problem solving and commercial creativity is obviously often about, well, how do we deal with change? Or how do we change an opinion? How do we change a process? How do we change our leadership? How do we change our outcome? How do we change our results? It's very change-focused. And one of the things we do when we work with companies around change is to say one of the problems we have is we're looking at change from a very singular lens. Uh, and that's we, we're obsessed with what's changing. So media's obsessed with it futurist you know you can't pick up a a newspaper or a story without an article on change and that all this stuff's coming awesome stuff by the way and it's really important that we're across change and we embrace it but in our you know in our work we think that we miss two very key spheres of change so obviously what's changing is really important 
and we need to sort of be react to that and know what it is but we also need to be conscious about what needs changing so it's very much in problem solving what are we proactively going to put into the planet and the world and what you know what can our business company our, ourselves as individuals proactively solve but the third sphere which pretty much gets no attention is what's unchanging mm. and we never filter the unchanging into our change conversation so we really wanted to do some work around that and we decided to write the book Forever Skills because our work with you know big corporates and entrepreneurs and I'm a mum I have a 10 year old uh, a lot of conversations with parents is deep panic around uncertainty so we thought you know what let's do some work about the skills that will be evergreen that will be forever that uh, will no matter what changes around us will set us up for success regardless yeah. of what changes. And this is really fascinating um, because you're right, everyone, every organisation, every media outlet is almost putting the fear of God into people about yeah. the robots are coming and AI. Yeah. And, and the robots all, are coming. And it's like this, this, but the focus purely is on us having yeah. to change and We're us having to adapt. To change. So what sort of things are you finding that if you had to look ahead... Um, what are some of those skills that we as human beings need to actually embrace and nurture? So it's really interesting. We've been interviewing, you know, some extraordinary human beings who top of their field from all over the planet, people who have been enormously generous with their time and energy, which is all, always wonderful. And, you know, we're having these fascinating conversations, deep rich conversations we do we, we've done a whole lot of surveys and quantity what we call quantitative data so we get quantity of data um, which is really useful but it kind of gives you the answers you sort of expect and what's fascinating is when we're talking to people and digging in that we're finding these skills that they've relied on most in their careers and they've relied on most in their lives and they want most for their children and they want most for their businesses are actually what, and I hate the term soft skills. Mm. I was, you know, it drives me nuts that we've, whoever, whatever genius went, oh, these are hard skills and these are soft skills, as if the soft skills, and we've made them less, but it tends to be the soft skills. It's the human skills. It's, a, it's actually relational skills. It's problem-solving skills. And it's very personal skills. So how do we... Uh, personally manage ourselves and our environment and our resources uh, our energy it's you know how do we connect with other people how do we understand them how do we relate to them and you know it's thinking stuff how do how do we think and how do we critically think and creatively think and really apply our brains to solving things that you know that aren't currently there and you know robots will do the repetitious stuff but it's it's all the stuff that you it's much more difficult to repeat mm. because it takes a different level they're the skills that the book is full of and emerging uh, so that's been it's really fascinating actually and what we want to do is have people go wow there's his 12 great skills that you know if I focus on in my business in my company as a leader as a parent um, I can act, I actually will be in good shape Mm. I'll be in good shape because the, the technical skills will be there, of course. But you know, we all know that in you know the difference is often not the technical skill. It's rarely the technical skill that gets someone the promotion. I find it quite calming as I'm listening to you because it gives a level of ownership yeah. around what you can. If these twelve skills, whatever they are, I'm obviously haven't read the book yet but it gives a <laughs> it's not finished being it's not written finished, but there's a wonderful almost um acknowledgement of as a human being we have some of these skills and we can develop them and we can master them and yeah. then become masterful into the future yeah and they still will like it, it won't matter and look we've looked back in history as well so obviously if they're forever they should exist through time and you know when you really dig in when you really dig in, it's rarely the technical skill. You know, sometimes it's a skill of, you know, being able to see a possibility, for example. 
So you know what, the skill of jumping into a production line, if you look in the Industrial Revolution, or there's still a, there's an identification skill, an ability to, you know, motivate yourself to move skill, to leave behind the status quo skill. They're, they're skills that will still be relevant and for people who are willing to jump in and jump at the right time. So you're knowing when it's right to move mm. becomes a skill, right? That you go knowing knowing that right moment where you're too early versus too late is is a crucial thing. So all of that becomes fascinating and, you're right, reassuring because, you know, the human beings, what makes us successful today will continue to make us successful mm. wrapped up in different delivery methods. Is there one that's come out and surprised you in terms of the consistency with which it's presenting itself in your research? Um, not Actually, not really I, I haven't been surprised I think what I've been deeply surprised at in the research is how broad-based our definitions of words are so conversations like resilience and people will say well I think resilience is a forever skill and you go okay well let's talk about resilience tell me about that that's really interesting what do you mean by resilience and what we're finding is the definitions are broad and vast and it just reminds you of how often we use language with different personal meaning attached and that we tend often to pick words that have broad appeal so we can reach consensus quickly and easily but it's actually not very clear so that's been interesting digging in you know scraping away from that initial word and going, what do you really mean? It's like the buzzwords, isn't it? Like yeah. collaboration, agile, yeah, yeah. resilience. Exactly. And grit. then you go, well, hang on, hang on, let's talk about collaboration. Mm. You know, Let's mm. talk deeply about what you mean by collaboration mm. because it does vary and change. So that, that's been joyful work and uh, I think you know, in, in creating and naming the 12 skills, which is what we're currently just finishing off because we're trying to find interesting frames to make sure that they don't fall into default mm. words where people go, oh, well, yeah, clearly it's resilience. Um, that's been interesting mm. and fun is that the depth of human experience on top of it because mm. there's always a story and, and an interpretation that comes with it. So you're an incredible thinker. The thing that I always love through conversations with you, you're always thinking about yeah. different opportunities and you're always seeing the the light and the shade of situations um which is a wonderful gift to have but what what is it that keeps you going you know what is why do you do your work why are you now authoring speaking helping other people versus running an ad agency and what is it that's making you do motivating you to do the work you're doing now well you know for me it was i i kind of outgrew advertising I think in the sense that it was one weapon in solving a problem but it was often too narrow and when we started the agency I said we were really rebellious and you know even from day one we were designing new products for Unilever and new alcohol brands for Lion Nathan and you know TV shows or whatever it was very broad the briefs we were taking on we designed a bottle for Pepsi before we worked for Coke which the global ended up squashing but it was awesome and cool and you know I, I had no experience in designing a bottle I you know like yeah we can do that sure we can help with that so we were getting these wonderfully broad like my definition was never do an ad it was always solve the problem and I think at some point I mean, I want to work beyond this this bucket. This bucket is a gift and extraordinary, but I want to solve more. And then my other personal mission has become how do we see creativity as a commercial skill it is? You know, I think as with the rise of artificial intelligence that our ability to think and solve problems and to collide interesting ideas and to you know filter what it means to people on top of that to design from a human being's point of view to to have empathy and to design accordingly to use creativity which you know is all these wonderful things it's not artistry I would say to people creativity is not artistry it's not an ability to draw it's an ability to think mm. and to really champion in that and bring it into the corporate landscape and 
you know, to the entrepreneurial landscape as well, but particularly to the corporate landscape, to say, no, 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 you're more creative than you think. It's a, absolutely a skill that applies to business and it's in a skill that will you can learn, again, because people think it's a talent and it's not, it's a skill. You can get better at it. And that, you know, there's a joy in going, how do we teach you to see to actually use the skill of commercial creativity, applied creativity, and how do we help you think differently, you know, to actually throw out your default thinking because we all have default thinking and move beyond it so you can get better solutions that work better for people Mm. and make the difference, you you know, people want to make. Like people don't go to work to have it not matter that they showed up. I don't think any of us want to spend our time and energy and have it not matter that we showed up. So it's how do we make sure that showing actually matters, showing up matters and we get to do the work we want to do. So what do you think stopping that? What in your experience are you seeing stopping that and creating? Because I, I agree with you. I think people want to show up and they want to do work that they enjoy. Equally, though, on the flip side, there's a lot of people struggling with that. Yeah, um, look, Gallup tells so what do you think? Yeah, so what do you think is getting in the way? Yeah, you know, human nature, I think, gets in the way. Mm. I think the complexity of the human condition, you know, the human condition often gets in the way and the need to control and manage and safeguard and the need and the fear, you know, our human fears, am I okay? Is this going to be okay? You know, we hide out, we get afraid. I think we get stopped. And I think fear, again, is a natural mechanism, but how do we, how do we unlock and move beyond that a bit? We're so, you know, we've been talking, when we're interviewing people about how we're not taught to fail, we're taught to succeed. You know, we're, we don't discuss failure, we discuss success. And, again, we don't unpack failure very well. And I think all that stuff gets in the way. I think, you know, the system is just a bit broken and we don't know how to undo it. Mm. So what tips would you give for people to unlock it for themselves? Um, So you've talked a lot about the fact that the system is a little bit broken, the fact that, you know, AI and all that challenge of technological evolution, revolution, and that human skills are going to be one of the most critical competitive advantage. And I love your concept of commercial creativity because to me that's that's taking creativity out of the bucket of only the, the, the yeah. talented few that can do it. And actually, it's the thinking skills. So people that are listening to this and going, yeah, yeah, I get it, Kieran, but how, how do I potentially unleash my forever skills and work harder on them? What tips would you have? So my first tip, and probably the most important tip, is uh, what most people don't think and know is that creativity is actually an effort it's a work ethic so do the work is the first one most of us just never do enough work on solving a problem we're really lazy about it um i've been trying to find this study i read at some point and i for the life of me can't unearth it so if anyone finds it please send it to me (laughs) uh and it was about uh children in uh china versus uh children in western culture and that you know, this, this kind of weird conversation that, oh, well, you know, children in China, you know, Asian children raised in those educational systems are better at mathematical things. So all the data t- is saying that. And what they found, the study was that they got these children to sit with a maths problem. And uh, the Asian children, you know, in the Asian system spent much longer sitting with the problem not being able to solve it than the Western children. And the Western children gave up really early. And I think it's exactly the same with creativity. Mm. I think people give up too early. Mm. I think they, you know, and again, we have to get our brains out of default. We have to input more interesting data and we, we need to slog it out. You know, it's, I like it's mental sweat. Mm. We actually have to get, you have to mentally sweat and, you know, again, this, you know, there's lots of bad ideas wrapped around creativity that I think reinforce the myth of rare and special, which, you know, things like, you know, a strike of genius, a flash of inspiration. They're all things that say, oh, it just comes to you. It just happens. 
And sometimes it does come to you, but it comes to you after you've sat with the problem in the back of your head and you've looked at this stuff and you've thought about the people it affects and you've really understood the problem deeply and then you've let it simmer. So you're doing the work and I think we just, we, we expect it to be eureka and it's not. It's actually much less glamorous <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's much more sweaty than, uh, than people know. So do the work would be my, if you want to make the biggest difference you can is just stop thinking that it should be easy and to start going, I'm just lazy <laughs> and I haven't thought enough and I haven't done enough work. I love all that. Now, if you weren't doing this job now, <laughs> what would you like to be doing? If I wasn't doing this? Yeah. Well, it's so hard when you love what you do. Uh, although I did say to you before, my other, I have a deep love of film. I think, yeah, the medium of, of movie making is pretty magical. I have a sort of like, you know, bottom of the drawer script that may never get finished, but I have a deep love of film. So I think if I wasn't doing this, I'd probably be going, mm, I need to write movies. Again, I think, you know, same you know, for me there, you know, how do we capture the, the human condition and how do we how do we use that to connect with people? I really I'm really interested and lit up by creativity used for purpose, you know, and the purpose of connecting someone, changing their opinion, moving them out of the place they're stuck. Mm. You know, creativity used powerfully, it it's transformative and I love like I love that. It just it makes me happy and I want it for more people. I want them to have the skill of it, to not just go, oh, it's left to me. I have to just be stuck, you know, with the status quo. And is that your wish for the future? For my wish for the future? <laughs> sure. I think <laughs> it... No, I, I, you know, look, I, you know, like anybody, I think that you want the future... Actually, I'm pretty optimistic about the future. Let's like apart from the fact I'm slightly concerned that we've left saving the planet too late. But again, I'm very hopeful or optimistic is probably a better word that we have smart people. You know, if enough smart, creative people uh, sit with the problem, that we can do some stuff about it. But beyond that, you know, I want us to, yeah, just do you know for more people to do the things they love and to to just get to have that joy you know to make good change so Kieran we often uh hear conversations discussions about what people want to become um but one of the questions I have for people on this podcast is who do you want to be what do you want to be remembered for <laughs> it's funny I I sometimes talk one of the mums at my daughter's schools her name's Sally and she mentors some of the year 12 students. She said, I don't understand why we ask kids all the time, who do they want to be when they grow up? She said, I always talk about, uh, or what do they want to be when they grow up? So I reverse that. She said, I always talk about who do they want to be? And we had a really good conversation about that, is, you know, what kind of human being do you want to be? Ah, uh, what, oh, big call. Hmm. Uh, I think a bringer of light. I, you know, I, I get, I, you know, for me, if I've shown up, if people feel lighter and happier and more positive and, you know, often in a challenging way, because I'm, you know, I like to, my joy is challenging thinking and unraveling current points of view. There's nothing I love more than having someone go, oh, I can't unthink that. And it's probably what it's some of the greatest and most frequent feedback I get is that I go, I can't unthink that. So I'd like people to go, I can't unthink that. Mm. That would be my, my life's work would be to leave us with things you can't unthink because they fundamentally shifted your brain space and Gosh. your point of view of the world. I can't wait for the book to come out. So Forever Skills is coming out when? It's due out. So Wiley are publishing it. It's due out in April. It feels very early to be spooking it. <laughs> I know, but you were talking about it today and I think this concept of uh, Forever Skills is fascinating in terms of those 12 key human skills that yeah. whether you're a parent, a graduate, a young manager, a first-time leader, a CEO, yeah. the skills that are actually going to give you a competitive advantage in this world that is moving quickly around us are the yeah. things that are going to well, make the Well, and then potentially the things that get overlooked and left yeah. behind and, and that you miss out because you're so obsessed 
you know, it's funny, it slightly correlates to Stephen Covey's urgent, important, mm. famous um, genius sort of insight. And it, well, you know, we noticed later, well, actually, it's not dissimilar. You know, what's changing is urgent, but what's unchanging is really important. Mm. And we tend to, we're getting distracted by the urgent and we're forgetting this very significant, very transformative skill that sits in what it's not going to change because it's always important. Mm. So with that, uh, another couple of things that stood out for me was your comment about creativity is a work ethic. Um, I've seen you do that yourself. And um, again, it is that concept of just thinking a little bit harder or doing a little bit more work than everyone else. And that whole concept of backing yourself. So early on you talked about the people that had your back, that were supporting you, that almost identified for you your superpower, and then it's backing yourself. And I get curious as to how many of our listeners have been told about their superpower, but they're not necessarily hearing it or backing themselves in it. Because I reckon you're right, we've all got superpowers. Well, we do. You just see it. And, you know, I... So we often buy into the notion, I think, that success has to be hard. And I don't think that it's not that success isn't hard. I think, like anything, it's it's never not without an extraordinary amount of work. But I think we overlook the things we find reasonably effortless because we, we find them natural and innate to us. And if we actually went, to, I think when you go to the things you, you quite naturally do and then you work on them and you amplify them and you just master the crap out of them, I reckon that's where the superpower magic is. I think it's it's life experience all mushed together. It's only you can have that, that view of the world. I think when you get that, you get to unleash your brilliance. Kieran, it's been absolutely fabulous chatting to you. That sounds like a TV show. Um, I will be one of the first buying that book when it comes out for anybody listening. She's going to buy it. I will. I think you might be given one. I will buy some. I'll buy some and gift to some of my. Oh, you give it to winners of the podcast. I can. I can. We'll work on a plan. Um, If anyone wants to follow Kieran, kieranflanagan.com.au. Across. Oh, sorry. Dot com. I knew that. I just said dot au. KieranFlanagan.com and you can find her everywhere on social media. You can. Think Kieran F is my handle and Kieran is I-E. No one can spell it. (laughs) My parents clearly failed, named me in a world pre-social media and created a tricky spelling and a boy's name. They were thinking. Not ideal from a social media point of view, but anyway. It's been fabulous having you on the show. And we will speak again when the book comes out, I reckon. Yeah, I reckon I'll come back for For more. more. Excellent. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Janine Garner Show. To follow her blog, purchase her books, or find out more, visit her website, janinegarner.com.au. Brilliant people, extraordinary results.